It's the My Michelle Live podcast. My Michelle Live, Psy Tech Talk, taking the God story to a geeky place. Here's Michelle. Hey, thank you for hanging out with me today. This is Psy Tech Talk. If you want to talk science and technology, let's take on the science and technology of an issue that is ripping this country apart. There was a leaked draft, as you all know by now, on Roe v. Wade. It was published earlier this month by Politico, and it indicated that a majority of the high court is ready to turn Roe v. Wade over. Vice President Harris maybe encapsulated a lot of what some of the country is feeling. She said that they're trying to weaponize the use of the law against women. They say this is a religious issue, not a science issue. Now, today we could talk about how the government may have weaponized the law regarding mandates, but that's not really applicable. That's a debate for another time. We could talk about abortion being racist. Nearly 200,000 black babies are killed by abortion each year, and the majority of abortion clinics are in black neighborhoods. Margaret Sanger, with her ilk who started Planned Parenthood, wanted to euthanize this inferior race of people. We could talk about that, but that's not what we're taking on today. We could talk about, uh, well, as a Harris cries about weaponizing the law against women, what about women in the womb? But if you can't speak for yourself and you can't vote, maybe you don't matter. We could even talk about how abortion is causing men to weaponize. Many men are suffering from a post-traumatic stress disorder as a result of abortion. Did you know this? The statistics are over the top and undeniable. A survey that was issued to inmates at prisons indicated 90% of them had been involved in an abortion experience that hurt them. Now, if they can callously kill their own offspring, what does it mean to commit a crime against you? Nothing. We could talk about abortion being a religious issue because, oh, it is. And not a science issue. Oh, but it really is. And it's mind spinning since some of them can't even get the issue of what a woman is to begin with scientifically, and we're supposed to trust them on the life issue. All right, how about today we take on the science issue and the Bible issue? Because my friend, I will contend with you, it is both. And we will look into it today. Then you tell me what you think about the issue of life. So to get down to the science of it, I've invited this man, friend, and he is the author of books like Creating Life in the Lab, Humans 2.0, and many others. He's a biochemist. Dr. Fuzz Rana is vice president of research and apologetics at Reasons to Believe and one of the most remarkable men that I have the opportunity to speak with on a fairly frequent basis. Fuzz, welcome and thanks for taking on this issue today. That's right, Michelle. Yeah, thanks for having me. There's a lot to this issue, but when it all boils down to this is a Bible issue, not a science issue, it's okay to say, hey, it's both. 
Yeah. And I, to me, I hold to a pro-life perspective largely because of the science of embryology. And to me, I think the question really boils down to what is an unborn child, right? What is a a developing embryo? What, and what is its moral status? And I would contend that a developing embryo is not only a human being, but also a, a human person. And and I think the science strongly supports that perspective. Fuzz, not only science, but really the laws. I know we want to stick to science in the Bible today, but science um, and the law has made it illegal to take eagle's eggs or the eggs of a sea turtle because uh, they're endangered, because they're, we want to propagate their species. Why is it that all of a sudden we get stupid when it comes to the life of the unborn human child? Yeah, you know, and, and, and that's really this, the, the $64,000 question that you're asking. It's ironic to me that there seems to be far more interest in the welfare of animals than there is in the wealth of human beings that are unborn. And I just find that to be mind boggling. I'm all for uh, protecting animals and and treating animals in a humane way. Uh, So I'm very much in favor of animal rights and appreciate the people that do advocate uh, for animals. But uh, at the end of the day, I think as a, a culture, we're deeply confused about the the value of human life in comparison uh, to the value of animal life. And I think part of this has to do with the implications of uh, human evolution. If you take the view that human beings are the product of an evolutionary history, and that history is an unguided, undirected history where human beings arise simply by chance, by lucky happenstance, then there's no fundamental inherent value to human beings. We're no different uh, than any other creature that exists. We're just part of this vast evolutionary tree of life like other creatures. And to say that somehow human life is special or is exceptional is considered to be highly, you know, offensive statement to make. It's considered to be a highly arrogant statement, kind of a, you know, it it smacks of speciesism. And I think that mindset, I think, causes us uh, to, to give greater value to, again, endangered species than we would to human, to unborn humans. And again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't invest everything we can to protect endangered species and treat them as valuable, but it's just <clears throat> ironic to me. That doesn't make humans less valuable, even more, because we care for this and humans have more value. It's interesting because we can think if you can mow down a blade of grass, what's the difference between killing a human if you have that mindset? Uh, And speciesism is a, a bad word, unless it comes down to you because my life is precious human life isn't precious but by god my life is precious my rights are precious right so it's a a bit of a hypocrisy there and i I think for me there was a song way back in the day it was uh by uh, this by steve taylor and it was entitled bad rap in it he says You save the whales, you save the seals, you save whatever's cute and squeals, but you kill that thing that's in the womb, wouldn't want a baby boom. Now, it's funny how a a song can trigger something in your mind. And many years ago, it got me thinking, what are we doing 
to ourselves when we kill humans in their most vulnerable state what does that do to our psyche and i had mentioned in the intro fuzz that uh, there is an overwhelming majority of men in prison who in a survey said yeah i was part of an abortion and it hurt me it has a kind of a PTSD. It has an effect. And these men have literally said, many of them have literally said, if I could kill my own kid, the very thing I was supposed to protect, what do I care about hurting you? So it really does, when we look at science and the Bible, um, if the Bible's true, then we're going to see it play out in science. Conversely, if we see science is true, we see it play out in a biblical way, in a morality way. They work together. So let's talk a bit about that. And then I want to get into the real science of life. How do we know that when life begins? And what do we know about what the Bible says about life and how that works with science? So that's how we'll take it on today. Yeah, sure thing. First of all, when I look at scripture, I see a very clear statement about human beings being made in God's image, and that the implications of that are worked out throughout much of Scripture, where the the idea is because human beings bear God's image, we have inherent worth and value. In fact, we are sacred. Every human being is sacred because they bear God's image. And whatever you do to another human being is, in a sense, viewed in Scripture as what you're doing to God himself. And this creates a very powerful motivation to protect human beings, to try to encourage human flourishing, and to minimize human pain and suffering. But again, it ultimately means that every human life has inherent worth and value. And then if you go to passages like Psalm 139, which is a very, you know, which is a favorite passage, I think, for a lot of people, here that the passage is speaking about how intimately God knows us as human beings. And, and David here isn't talking about God intimately knowing us as human beings after we're born. He's talking about the fact that God intimately knows each of us at the very moment that we're conceived uh, and that God uh, is essentially involved in knitting each of us together in our mother's womb, that God is, is weaving us together, that we are creations, each of us, not only is humanity a creation of God, but each of us as individuals are creations of God, where God is, again, intimately involved in the process of bringing about our embryological development and, and our birth. And so this is a deeply encouraging passage for many people because it talks about how intimately God knows us and how much God cares for us. But the implications of that are that that human beings bear God's image from the very moment of conception, and that w- that Psalm 139 to me implies that God is just as concerned uh, about the the unborn child as he is about anybody who is alive and walking around. A good point. And one of the reasons we're taking on this issue um, of Psalm, and you mentioned Psalm 139, a few years ago, you wrote in a blog, The Remarkable scientific accuracy of Psalm 139. And it was posted recently and has hundreds of 
of views and shares now. It's taken off like wildfire. One of the reasons I would contend is that people really want to know, when does life begin? Are we fearfully and wonderfully made? Are we knit together in our mother's womb? People really genuinely want to know. We're not taught this in school. The science isn't out there in abundance. So when we, well, I guess it is. It's just not reported in abundance. Is that a fair way to say it, do you think? Yeah, that's a fair way to say it, yes. <laughs> so as yeah. we look at this, let, let's dig into uh, one, on one regard, we can say, yeah, the Bible says that you're fearfully, wonderfully made, knit together in your mother's womb. And there's other passages that refer to the unborn that would show the value of life. But what does science say about these? Are we really knit together. It's God up there with knitting needles. You put, I, I know that when you read the Bible, for those of you who are listening, there are some times that it's literal and there's sometimes that it's figurative and it's very obvious. So no, God isn't up there with knitting needles, but what does the science reveal about what truly happens in the womb? And how is that phrase actually accurate? Yeah, I find it interesting that David, being inspired by God, would use the description of the embryological process, the developmental process, as being like God <clears throat> knitting together each of us in our mother's womb or God weaving us together. Because when you, my mom knits, and it's fascinating to me to watch her knit because she's you know, taking yarn of different colors and involved in these different types of knitting strokes. And if you look at what she's doing as she's knitting, it doesn't necessarily tell you what actually she's making. Is she making a sweater? Is she making a scarf? What kind of patterns are, is she going to enter, knit into the sweater? You can't necessarily tell that by what she's doing in the immediate now, but in her mind, she's operating off of a set of instructions that have been designed with the end product in mind so that there's foresight, if you will, or there's planning ahead so that each individual action is contributing to this end product, this larger end product. And it's very similar to what happens during embryological development, where you see evidence for pre-planning and foresight wow. in a remarkable way, because each one of us begins as a single cell individual, an individual single cell, a fertilized egg, a zygote. And at that point of fertilization, we're, we are genetically unique individuals, unlike anybody else that has ever lived or ever will live. And that single cell over the course of nine months ends up producing a fully formed human being that consists of trillions of cells and 210 different cell types. And this is all achieved through four or five very simple cell processes, replicate cells communicate with one another through a variety of different means, cells um, migrate relative to one another, and they undergo specialization. And some cells even undergo what's called programmed cell death or apoptosis. But this process, if you look at the behavior of an individual cell during the course of embryological development, the, it, it doesn't necessarily tell you anything about what the, the final product is going to be, what the what that developing embryo is going to be like. But when you look at all of the cells together that in their behavior together during the course of embryological development, it's very clear that there's some kind of set of instructions that each of the cells is following that is contributing to the overall developmental process. There's foresight 
uh, in the process. And so it's amazing because cells will they'll replicate, they'll start to undergo specialization or differentiation. They migrate relative to one another. They secrete chemicals into the environment that create these gradients. Some of the cells again die and this helps to sculpt the different body parts. And so this is, it's an incredibly elaborate process that is fundamentally the same uh, approach that somebody takes when they knit or they weave, where there is again, this end product that in mind and that the, each cell is operating by a unique set of instructions that again is contributing to the overall developmental process. Another analogy very quickly that might help people to see again, the, the God's fingerprints in this process. Think about a marching band going onto a football field. And when I was a in graduate student, I, I was a, a graduate school, I was at Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. And, and our football team was horrible in those years. This was the, the mid 1980s, but everybody still went to the games because at halftime, the marching band, the, the, the OU 100 would go out onto the field and they were just a great marching band, a lot of fun to watch. And after halftime, everybody would leave. The first thing they would do is they would march out on the field and they would spell out Ohio. Think about this. Each band member has a unique set of instructions, right? Where some somebody's marching out on the field, 25 steps, they turn right for 10 steps, they go left for three steps, they stop and turn around. And other band members are doing different things, but collectively those individual actions are contributing to this overall pattern. They're spelling out Ohio. And, and so there had to be somebody that designed this, each the, the choreography and determined the set of instructions for each person in the marching band. And that's exactly what's happening during embryological development. And so to me, the, the whole process speaks of this is not a haphazard process that was arrived at by accident, but it looks to be an intelligently designed process. And scientists don't know where the instructions come from that controls embryological development. We can, in organisms like the, the nematode C. elegans, we literally can know the behavior of every one of the cells in C. elegans during the course of its embryological development. So we can map out the history of every one of these cells, but nobody knows what's controlling the behavior of the individual cells, right? The, where, the, where does a, those set of instructions come from? That is the, the big mystery in biology. And I submit to you that it's that those instructions are coming from the mind of God. Knit together. In, in our mother's womb, <clears throat> when we look at the intricacy and you understanding microbiology, looking into DNA and seeing the programming, when I've looked at computer programming, when I've even tried to create my own website, there are, there's a host of differing commands that you have to put in the right order or your website looks wonky. Things come up and you're going, whoa, how do I fix this? You know, what one little thing is off. When you look at binary and all of the, even simplicity of ones and zeros, but in the right order creates everything that we have surrounding us from our cell phones to what we're broadcasting on today. It's intricate, but cannot compare to the intricacy 
of the human cell. So it, it is astounding. And what you're mentioning is astounding. The developmental uh, ability of a zygote to an, an embryo, to a baby, to is astounding as well. But we are in a continual state of flux. I'm not the same person that I was in the womb, and I'm not the same person I was as a toddler. I'm not the same person I was as a teenager. Thank God, I'm not the same person that I was 10 years ago. My body has changed. Uh, things that uh, my Things in my development have made me almost a different person, and yet I'm still the same person. That's a consistency in the worldview when you take that from conception to death. Uh, when you don't, when you don't, your worldview just doesn't line up. Yeah, and, and you're making a really good point, Michelle. And because so oftentimes you'll hear people say the embryo becomes it's human, but it becomes a human person at birth let's say, or if somebody like Peter Singer would say at two years of age, because that's when, you know, the, the infant begins to have self-awareness or sentience. But these lines are all arbitrary. So, you know, are one day before birth, are you not a human person? But then on the day of your birth, you are a human person. And what if you're, right? what if you're and, a preemie baby? Are you really a human person then or... Yeah. And to me, you can't just simply draw an arbitrary line that's convenient and say at before that line in time, it's not a human person. And after that point in time, it is. That's just simply arbitrary. The, the point where a unique human individual originates is at the point of conception when you have this zygote and, and the zygote, the fertilized egg is unlike any other cell in our body because it's the only cell that has that potential to develop into a fully formed human being. And again, it's operating through this very elaborate, sophisticated set of <clears throat> programs and genetic programs and instructions in order to affect, but there's no other cell in our body that has that developmental capacity. And so it's, you're looking at a unique human being at that point. And I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to say, this is actually a human person. It, to try to sidestep what the science is really saying, I think through through arbitrary definitions, I think is really not it's not it's not legitimate. I think back maybe five years ago when there was a huge march for science. Do you recall that the march for science that they, there were people who were pointing the finger and saying you're a science denier? I think it had to do with with climate change and things of that nature. Science is God is actually a phrase that you can see portrayed vibrantly off the side of the freeway if you're in Seattle. If you're driving north or south on I-5 just north of town, just north of downtown, you'll see this weird building with neon lights. It's a, I don't know, is it an apartment? Is it, is it an organization? But they have a sign that says science is God. Science deniers are bad. And yet when it comes to things like what's a woman or what's a baby, suddenly our science is fuzzy and we're working off antiquity. What one scientist, I love the term zombie science, referred to as zombie science. It's like dead science, but we keep wanting to reanimate it and bring it back to life. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a, a very powerful point is that is that people conveniently use science to support their particular political positions. But when it's no longer on both sides, on all sides. Yes, on all sides. Everybody is, is guilty of that. And we want to be careful not to deify science. It, science is a methodology by which we go about understanding the world around us. And our scientific understanding is always provisional. But at the same time, we, we do want to take the findings of science seriously. And I and it's interesting to me, even for people that are that would hold to a materialistic, you know, atheistic, you know, worldview, they still recognize that there's something sacred about and special about human embryos. And so even though the people are able to create embryos in the lab and, and experiment on them for up to two weeks, and there's some people that are campaigning to extend that time of experimentation up to potentially a month or beyond, but they still recognize that there's something special about the embryo, that it still has some kind of moral status that goes beyond just simply a typical culture of human cells or, or other types of cells. And so I find it interesting that intuitively people recognize that there's something special about human embryos. I was actually talking with a woman who's an OBGYN, also a Christian, and I was asking her about, about what it's like to be an OBGYN in a climate where, you know, Roe v. Wade is the law of the land. And, and she was saying that, that most OBGYNs actually don't perform abortions. Is that whether, regardless of their worldview, most actually don't perform abortions. They know how to, but they don't do it. And she said to me, which I thought was interesting, is that even if people aren't uh, pro-life, they still recognize that there's something really very different and valuable about a human embryo. There's something special about a, a human embryo or a fetus or, or, or a neonate. And I just think it's interesting that intuitively, if people recognize there's something very important about, uh, again, about an embryo, but scientifically, you can make that it's an open and shut case in my mind <laughs> that, a, that an embryo is a human being and a human person. For many people, though, they can recognize, okay, of course, it's a human being, and yeah, it's a human person. But up to a certain age, they may not feel pain. If they're not sentient, then killing them is more merciful. That argument, however, goes back to what I had said before. I think it messes with the psyche of America. You have men with a kind of a PTSD, according to that study, that says, hey, if I can kill, support killing my own offspring. And for some of these men, multiple partners, multiple children succumbing to abortion. What does that do to a psyche? What does that, what, what do we have to do to tell ourselves it's okay? And maybe this is where I want to say for those of us in America who have been part of or who have had an abortion, um, it's easy to run and try to hide behind fake science or a, a movement to justify what took place. But just as Dr. Rana said, we innately know that you shouldn't be doing scientific experiments on an embryo, especially past a certain, a certain time. You shouldn't be messing with stuff like that. That's, it, it's unethical. We know. 
So running isn't going to cover that. There's something deeper. If you look through, as I often say on this show, check out your worldview. If there's an inconsistency in your worldview, might need to change. But when you look at a biblical worldview, there is a beautiful uh, synchronicity. It syncs up with science. It syncs up with nature. It syncs up with political ideology. And, and, and it's not about being left-wing or right-wing. It's about being on the side of God, on a biblical side that makes everything line up. And in that worldview, there's forgiveness, there's healing, there's understanding. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You're no worse than anybody else because you've had an abortion, but you're also no better. And this is where there is, there really is hope and there really is healing. I think of Alveda King, who is with Priest for Life. and uh, She ha- talks about the many abortions that she's had and there's healing and there's hope. There is also a lot of resources. They make it out as though, Fuzz, those who are pro-life, why aren't you out there adopting children? Why there are hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of help and clothing and medical uh, attention and adoption and that is actually out. We just don't hear it because the press isn't on that side. But there really is hope. And in these final moments together, I wanted to talk about that hope. We promise to marry the Bible and science because the issue of life is truly both. Fuzz, I was hoping that maybe you could take us out on that note. Yeah, yeah. I'll go back to uh, Psalm 139 because, you know, that passage of scripture, again, encourages so many people because it, it reminds us that God intimately knows who we are from the very point that we are conceived and that God ultimately wants us to intimately know him. And he's made a way for us to do that through the, the person of Jesus Christ, who, who sacrificed himself on the, co- on the cross willingly so that we could be reconciled to God. And, and your point is so powerful that there is no sin that we can commit that God cannot forgive and cannot use uh, and cannot reconcile us to himself. But also through that process of being reconciled to God, we are also in a position to be reconciled to other people. And God is is a God of justice, but he's a God of mercy and grace too. And, and God can work in the most horrific circumstances to bring about incredible good for his sake and, and for his glory. And I would just invite people to recognize that God intimately knows us and he wants us to intimately know him. And through that intimate knowledge of God, there's incredible amount of hope that exists and encouragement that exists for everyone, regardless of who you are or what you've done. And to think that in that womb, God knew you. He knew who you were. He knew the plans that he had for you to prosper you and not to fail you, to give you a hope and to give you a future. That's what we want to take on in every episode of this show. Hope is interwoven in the pages of the Bible and in God's plan for your life. If if you've watched this and you still have questions or there's things you say, oh, what about, I want to hear from you, whether it's criticism or questions, 
I'm not afraid to take those on. God says, come, let us reason together. Hence, reasons to believe, <laughs> because there are reasons to believe. And God's not afraid of reasoning things out. So if God's not afraid of those challenges, who am I to be? So bring them on. And as you watch or listen, if this you believe that the messages that we're taking on, the news that we're tackling, and the science that we're bringing up makes a difference, I'm asking you to make a difference. This is a time in history that you were born in to make a difference. So like this, share this, comment. All of those things helps propel programs like this in all of the social media and all of the internet formats that we're on, it helps to propel it and it helps the truth to get out there. And remember, it is the truth that sets us free. Dr. Fuzrana has been our guest today. The remarkable scientific accuracy of Psalm 139 is a blog posting that we will have that you can connect to most likely wherever you're listening to this, but if not at mymichellelive.com. You'll also have links to some of his awesome books. They're so well written and you can totally geek out on them. Fuzz, I just adore you. Over the years, uh, you've become more than just an interview. You're a friend. Thanks for joining us today. I so appreciate you. And thank you. God bless. More SciTech Talk at MyMichelleLive.com. Sci Talk more of Michelle at you'll find it at Michelle.com or the Schmiggy Brothers. One of the two. <laughs>